Flip to Romans 6. Romans 6, we're going to look at verses 1 through 14. And then in two weeks, we're going to pick up the rest of chapter 6. But today we're going to talk about under grace and law. So Romans 6, verse 1. I'm going to read the text and we'll pray and we'll uh, dig in together. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may increase or that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Do you not know that we who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, that just as Jesus Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, so shall we also be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man has been crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be destroyed, and we should no longer be slaves to sin. For the one who has died is free from sin. Verse 8, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death has no further dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey, in it, it, obey it in its lusts. Do not yield your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but yield yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we thank you for the gift of your word and the gifts of your covenant signs. We have gathered this day to exalt you, the triune Godhead, the creator, the sustainer. We are grateful that Christ has come to rescue us from sin and death, so we ask, Spirit, that you would help us to walk in that reality. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So looking at the title of this message, one might take a double glance and wonder what in the world I'm talking about, especially when Paul is so adamant to state in verse 14 that we're not under law but under grace. And here this schmuck is standing up here with a sermon title that says, Under Grace and Law. <laughs> and no one knows what to do now as a result. Perhaps we should just throw things at him. <laughs> I don't encourage that. You don't need to throw anything at me. This is no accident, rest assured. Um, I have my reasons for titling it the way I do, and I'm just going to tell you up front what that, what that is. The reason I'm saying we're under grace and law is because the issue that Paul takes up in verse 14 here in the text is actually a matter of what the Torah, the law, actually does to a sinner not a justified sinner-made saint. His issue in verse 14 is, what does the law do to a sinner? Not, what does the law do for the justified, was a sinner, but now you're made a sinner saint, you're righteous in Christ. That's the issue. So there's no debate that the law cannot save. Within the bounds of Orthodox Christianity, no one's arguing that the law of God somehow saves you. If only you do it perfectly and righteously. No one's arguing that. Um, the law, <laughs> well, 
that part we've had down pretty pat since you know for 500 years the protestant reformation a lot of it was that that issue so even theonomists have been saying for the for a long long time and we we heartily adore the law of god and appreciate the law of god and we sing its praises like david does in psalm 119 uh, or, or even in psalm 19. Uh, so there there definitely is a place for the law of god but we're not arguing oh if you obey it then you're just going to magically be, be made right with god that would be heretical teaching, salvation by works, and may God damn those types of things, uh, as he says in Galatians. So we're not arguing that. The, the law doesn't save, but that's not the same thing as saying that it has no purpose for the saved. All right? The law doesn't save, but that's not the same thing as saying the law has no purpose for the person who is saved. It simply means that it can't do one thing but it can do another, all right? Your car, and, and kids, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the car that you rode in here today, that car can't get you to the moon, right? You can't hop in your car and drive to the moon. But what can, that's silly, right, Luna? <laughs> but it can get you to the grocery store, right? But just because you can't get to the moon doesn't mean, well, the car is useless. Well, no, you can still do other things with it. So remember that we've already seen that Paul says in chapter 3, verse 31, that we establish the law. That's his quote. We establish the law. So he's been walking a tightrope trying to deal with the complex issue of, of Jewish history. And here we have all this Jewish history. But now we have this newfound reality where in this new covenant, we have Gentiles who weren't given the law but they had the work of the law written on their hearts. How do we, how, what do we do with the, wall, the law now? We have to kind of walk this tightrope. So Paul is nuanced, he's careful, and one thing he's avoiding is the charge of antinomianism. Antinomianism is simply a, a nice, cute word that simply means against the law. So he, he doesn't want to be viewed as an antinomian, somebody who is completely and utterly against the law of God. So he's walking... He's walking a, a tightrope. So what, what he has done so far in Romans is consign all men and women and children to a status of sinner. And the reason is, of course, Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's, that he's already established that. So all, and I take that word to mean all, <laughs> which we should, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So only when... Only when he or she is established in Christ can then he or she be brought forth into this new status of righteousness or justice. Okay? So that's the groundwork. He's already dealt with that. So Paul doesn't speak out of both sides of his mouth. He's never done that. He doesn't say in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 31, we establish the law. He doesn't say that here. And then later he's coming along and saying, well, actually... You don't really need the law anyway, so don't worry about it. That's not what Romans 6.14 teaches. You're not under law, you're under grace. He's not saying in one place we establish the law, and then in another place, well, actually, no, you don't really need it. You could look at that that way, but you would be wrong. So there's no contradiction, and, and frankly, the only contradiction is made up in the minds of antinomian pietists who just have no purpose for the law. And that's a different issue for a different day. 
So the point of Romans 6.14 is actually very, 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 very easy to understand as the context will demonstrate. This is what he's saying there. In Christ, we are no longer under the law's condemnation. Instead, as forgiven sinners, we are under the status of grace. That's it. That's all that verse means. It doesn't mean you have no obligation of justice or righteousness or principles of restitution or taxation or, 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 or um, just laws for economics, right? We don't throw all that out of the window just because we're no, not under law. No, we're not under the law's condemnation. So that, that's the big thing. So the law can't save. Only grace through faith saves. But the law can do other things. In fact, that's what he gets into the big, right now, this huge debate on Romans 13. Well, what does the civil magistrate, what are they allowed to do? Do they have unending kind of a blank check? They get to do whatever it is they want. Or is there a threshold that God gives them? And the answer is obviously yes. They don't have a blank check. They are to obey God. Caesar's made in God's image. Caesar needs to obey God. End of story. So let's just look at a few key things here in the text, and you can follow along as I go. I'm just going to make some observations. So in verse 1, we'll start there. So in verse 1, we have a rhetorical question. If based, Think of it this way. If, based on the end of chapter 5, sin reigned in death, but Christ broke and shattered its power in resurrection, then it makes sense. It makes sense, then, one would think, to sin... And that way we can get more and more grace, right? I mean, if, if, if the law came in to increase the trespass and there's more sin, but then God's grace comes in even more, why not just sin? That seems to make most sense, right? The wages, uh, well, obviously, the, obviously not. It's a rhetorical question. How is it possible for a dead-to-sin person still live in sin's death? The wages of sin is death. That's the fruit. If you're no longer alive to sin and dead to Christ, <laughs> that follow it, this is, this is tricky language that Paul uses. If you're no longer alive to sin and dead to Christ, but you're actually dead to sin and alive in Christ, he says, how in the world could you go back? How could you go back? Sin has increased because the law makes sin known, and therefore grace along, comes along to help us, does that mean we should cheer on the sinning? Yay, more sinning, because then we'll get more grace. Shall we do evil so the good may come? He says earlier. <laughs> God forbid. God forbid. See, sin brings death. The only way out of death, the only way out is death to sin. And the only way that happens is by you actually dying if the wages of sin is death you have to die so he raises the question in verse 2 do you not know that we who are baptized into christ jesus were baptized into his death in other words the the sign of baptism points to a reality you died with christ and in christ now you are alive alive with christ and alive in christ so one one doesn't accept jesus's death as though you stood afar at a distance, applauding his matchless grace. Yay for Jesus, he died. And then you get to get off scot-free. Okay? In order to die to sin, one must die. But here's the problem that we sinners have. Your death 
And only your death is a penalty for sin because you were alive in sin. You were alive in death. So you need, think of it this way, you need death to consume itself, which is what Christ has done. Sort of the two negatives make a positive thing. You were, alive, you were actually dead, but you were alive in sin. He says you have to die to the sin. You have to die to it. So Jesus and only Jesus consumes death down to the dregs. So if one wishes to continue sinning, giving oneself over to sin's dominion without any pushback, that's not only an unbecoming response, it's something that can't actually happen anyway. Sin is a horrendous taskmaster, and if you're in Christ, you don't serve that master anymore. Christ has beaten it, no question about it. So we were buried with him by baptism into death, and we were raised with Christ when the glory of the Father raised Jesus. Baptism points to this. That's his point. That's what it's a symbol of. So as such, if you look at verse 4, we're told that we're to walk in newness of life. So think of it this way. If you're alive, then walk. If you're dead to sin and alive in Christ, then walk. Get up and walk. Act like it. Act like it's true because it is true. That's his argument. He continues in verse 5. If it's true that we're united to Christ in his death, then it logically follows that we're united in his resurrection. So that which belongs to Christ now belongs to us on the basis of grace through faith. So what's, what's ours is his and what's his is ours. That sort of logic. So when this uniting happens, this is a, a covenantal transaction, he says in verse 6, Our old man has been crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we should no longer be slaves to sin. Um, usually we think of that as a pejorative about our fathers. My old man. <laughs> My old man said this. Well, there's actually a biblical understanding of what an old man actually is and it has nothing to do with age. It has to do with covenant. The old man, this, this old man is the sinful condition that we have been given because of our union with Adam. If anyone's, if anyone's your old man, it's Adam <laughs> and what you have in Adam. He's the old man. So Paul says something similar in Galatians 2.20. This is a text you guys have heard before. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So, so the old man, the body of sin, the ethical condition of our pre-converted, unregenerate state is put up on the cross with Christ, buried in the tomb with Christ, and then raised with Christ. That's how this logic works. So if that's true, and it is, then it follows that the one who has died is free from sin. That's verse 7. The one who has died is free from sin. So Paul's emphasis is, is what he was talking about in the previous chapter. Remember, Christ broke the power of canceled sin. He broke the power. He didn't just die and there was sort of like a, a magical moment of, oh, the sin is magically gone. No, there's a judicial and an ethical component to it. You have to die as well. Death has to be broken. 
So Christ is the one who breaks the power of canceled sin. So think of it in terms of what he's already said in last week. What used to lord over us as a taskmaster has now been dethroned. What used to reign, death used to reign over you, sin was enthroned over you, it's dethroned. What used to be a taskmaster has now been subdued. What used to mark our lives has been eradicated in Jesus' name. So what Christ the second Adam does, does is dethrone the ruler that the first Adam had established, namely Satan, sin, and death. So I know we covered that last week, and it really ties into, again, there were no chapter breaks in the letter that he wrote and that um, uh, would have been carried off by uh, Phoebe. So there's a reason um, for while the chapter breaks are helpful, don't think that they're like brand new sections talking about completely new things. So in verse 8, if we died with Christ, again, we live with Christ. Christ was raised in resurrection glory, and he will never die again. For death, in verse 9, death has no dominion over him. Death has no dominion over him. So he broke its power, and as a result, he is Lord over death and hell. Jesus is Lord over death. Jesus is Lord over hell. So the death he died, verse 10, was special. Why why is it that Jesus' death is so significant to Christian theology? And the answer is this. He died to sin once for all. It was full and final. And the reason is because he was the only one who died without actual sin that was his. He died with sin and it was ours. It wasn't his. That's why it's special. So as a result of his special death, he was raised, he was vindicated on the third day, and he lives, and the life he lives, now he lives to God, he says. So think of it this way. Christ was never stuck in this endless, bogged-down state of sin and death. He never was. He was never stuck in it. He was plucked from the grave to break the power of sin once and for all. So in light of that, <laughs> in light of that, we ought to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 11. So this is true. So what do, you, what do you ought to do in light of it? You should consider yourselves dead to sin. So the junk, <laughs> the junk we had being in Adam has been hauled away, and now we're in Christ, the second Adam. It's been hauled away. So this newfound judicial standing is true. It is a real thing, which means we have to always consider ourselves dead to sin and raised to new life. That's your job as a Christian. Consider yourself dead to sin and raised to new life. Which, of course, has practical examples. Verse 12, we ought not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies, obeying its lusts. The rule and reign of sin has been broken, and while sin is always seeking to recover some sort of dominion over someone, somewhere, it must be actively resists, resisted. He says in verse 13, not to yield your members to sin, which would then become instruments of unrighteousness. What translations do we have that differ there? Do not yield. Verse 13. Do not present. Do not offer. Okay. That's actually a really good translation. Uh, uh, the ESV says, um, present, yeah, do not present. 
So the word yield or present, it, it's actually the, it carries the meaning of an offering. So offer is probably a better word. But th this idea of offering, don't make your body and your mind and your soul, don't offer that to sin. Kind of like the offering when you're giving something over to someone else. Don't offer yourself to sin. Don't make it available. Instead, make yourself available to God as instruments of righteousness. So your offering, by the way, your offering, he says later in chapter 12, is to be a living sacrifice of praise to God in all that you do. So again, if, if something is now true in Christ, and it is, then you must proceed, all right? You must proceed as though the true thing were actually true, because it is. All right, that's Paul's logic. If, if this is true, then you need to proceed in life as if it's true. Not navel gaze and worry if, well, I don't know if it's true. I don't know if I'm really forgiven. There's a lot of people that struggle with uh, assurance of salvation, they, they struggle with wondering, well, did Jesus actually save me? Yeah, he did. You can bank on it. Don't be assured of your assurance. Be assured that what is true is true. So proceed as if that is the case, because it is. So don't do this. Do this instead, for sin absolutely will not have dominion over you. Verse 14. And the reason that sin will not have dominion over you is for you're no longer under the law's condemnatory feature as a sinner. You're not there. You're not under the law's condemnatory feature as a sinner. But instead you are, because Christ has dethroned Satan's sin and death, you are under the grace of of God in Christ, and therefore the law does not stand over you as a condemnation, but rather you stand in it as a living sacrifice. That's the difference. So let's pull out a few things. What Paul means is this. When you're heading to the promised land, you better not plan a return trip back to Egypt. Some people had done that, if you recall. They moaned about things. This is terrible. At least we got, you know, yeah, we made bricks for 15 hours a day, but it was actually not that bad. We could probably live. I mean, how bad does something have to be? How, how bad does it have to be for you to think that something that was absolutely atroc an atrocity was better? Yeah, your, your own pity, I guess. See, if God has delivered you, how stupid are you to go back into slavery? That's uh, my translation of Paul here. If God has delivered you, how stupid. How, how in, incompetent are you to go back into slavery? In fact, God's deliverance is so sure and steady that you can't actually go back into that slavery anyway, no matter how tempted you are to do so. You can't do it. So you couldn't, follow me here, you couldn't go back if you wanted because those who want righteousness really do want it, and they could never return to a state of unwanting it, even if they wanted, which they can't. <laughs> I had to craft that sentence uh, carefully because <laughs> I confused myself. Even if you wanted, okay, you couldn't go back to slavery to sin, even if you wanted, because those who actually want righteousness really do actually want righteousness, and they can't somehow unwant it even if they could, they wouldn't, because they can't. Confused? So am I. <laughs> but that's Paul's argument here. That's his argument. 
So there's an important principle here that we need to understand, and it has to do with Jesus taking our place. All right? This is, um, this is hugely important. Jesus didn't die so that you could live. He died so that we could die. All right? That's the difference. We, Jesus didn't die so that we could live. He died so we could die. He died so that we could go there with him because our death is altogether insufficient to do anything on the other side of death. When a sinner dies, because the wages of sin is death, that's the end of it. That's it. There's no resurrection hope of glory. There's resurrection despair of punishment. Okay? There's nothing past that. Your death has no possible way of rectifying your life of sin. You, in other words, you can't atone for yourself. You can't do it. You can't do it while you're alive, and you certainly can't do it when you're dead. So the wages of sin is death, and the only paycheck we've ever earned has been signed by sin. That's what we cash in. So apart from Christ, the only, apart from Christ, the only currency that we know is rebellion and recusancy. That's all we know. Rebellion. So in order to break this power over us, the power that is over us has to be broken. It has to be shattered. In order for us to cash in on a righteous paycheck, we have to have a different banker. We have to have a different lender. We have to have somebody signing the check that's not Satan, sin, or death who had the power over us. And Jesus Christ is that new source of power and righteousness, and the cross is where we look to apprehend the glory of it all. So, central to Christian theology is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Maybe you're familiar with it, maybe you're not. Substitutionary atonement. But this doctrine is sometimes misunderstood, so I really want to just clarify it. Um, when we talk about balancing the meat and the milk of the word, this is some foundational stuff. So it's important to have down pat. When we speak of Jesus being our substitute, it's not as though Jesus died so we didn't have to. Okay, We need to make this clear. It's not that Jesus died so that we didn't have to. A reductionistic version of pietistic evangelicalism might posit it this way, and I'm sure you've heard it. Here it goes. Jesus loved you so much that he died for you so you could go to heaven. Right? You've heard it before. Maybe you've even said it. Um, I am fond of telling uh, <laughs> would-be evangelists, don't go around telling people that Jesus loves them because it's not entirely true. <laughs> For God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten son so that all those who believe, all the believing ones, right? It's not as though you have Psalm 5.5, God hates all evildoers. You have this balance of scripture where God is just. It's not like this indiscriminate, Jesus, he's just gushy and ooey-gooey and loves everyone and wants everybody to have a chill time. That's the wrong Jesus altogether. So Jesus loved you so much that he died for you so you could go to heaven. This sounds like truth, and it does contain some truth. But just because it might contain some truth doesn't mean it is truth. So there's a lot of things missing from this formula, and it's what's missing that matters. All right, you can bake a cake and tell people all day it's a cake. Well, what's in it? <laughs> oh, 
only flour. <laughs> okay. Well, you're, you left out some key ingredients here. It's not going to taste that great. So when we speak of Jesus being our substitution, we don't mean that he died in our place so that I didn't have to die for my sins. That's not what we're saying. While it is convenient to say that Jesus died so that I could live, it's not really the entire truth. Remember what I quoted from Galatians 2. What does Paul think of himself and his relationship to Christ on the cross? What does he think? He says, I've been crucified with him. He doesn't say, oh, Jesus died and my sins were nailed to the cross. And eh, yeah, but you were there too. I have been crucified with Christ. So it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. My old man had to die. That's the point. So Jesus, Jesus our substitute ought to mean that Jesus' atonement has been credited to my account because I don't have the funds to pay the bill. So he didn't, he didn't die over there so I could live over here. He died over there so that I could die with him over there in him and have his death supersede my death because my death is altogether worthless. His is not. So, so Jesus died so I could die. Jesus was buried so I could be buried. My sins had to go into the tomb with Jesus just as much as they were put on him on the cross. They needed to get swallowed up in the belly of the earth. And on the third day, Paul insisted, he, he insisted that we we're raised with Christ too. He didn't just die with Christ. You weren't just died, you died with him and buried with him. You too were raised with Christ. So don't... <laughs> to turn a phrase, don't socially distance yourself from the cross. You were there on the cross with Christ. You were there in the tomb and you were there on that resurrection morning just like you were there with Adam. Same principles at play. So what you and I need is a sufficient atonement. We need a sufficient atonement. And we can grope and grasp for one in our own meritorious efforts, or we can humble ourselves and go with Christ all the way. You can take up your cross. You can go to the cross. You can be in the tomb. You can be raised. That's the only formula that works. It's the only formula that works. They're the only options. You either die with Christ or you die in your transgressions, but die you must. And since this is the basis of Paul's atonement theology here, we can base all other exhortations on this particular covenantal understanding. So we ought to, he says, consider ourselves dead to sin. Why? Why should we consider ourselves dead to sin? Because Christ's death and only his death is altogether sufficient. It's not like you have something to give. Even your death is worthless. There's no value there. Your righteousness is worthless. Your death is worthless. That's why you need another death. So when you're tempted to go back under the old taskmaster, you're not just sinning by partaking in the darkness. You're sinning by not believing that you died with Christ. It's not, you're not just sinning because you want to be tempted to you know, commit this XYZ sin. Well, actually, there's two things happening. You're also not believing that you died with Christ. You believe that you're alive in sin still. 
you believe that the old man for that moment is still alive and well and that it has an appetite you must satisfy. See, usually we think of sins as being things that we do, but they're also things that we don't do, right? Sins of omission and commission. You might actually lust in your heart and thus you commit adultery in your heart, but you've also failed to consider yourself dead to sin because you died with Christ. You wanted in that moment to be alive to something other than Christ. That's what sin is. That's what temptation is. Temptation is this, uh, um, this moment of us trying to be alive somewhere other than Christ. So you wanted to be dead to righteousness, and then you wanted to be alive to unrighteousness. But this is not something a justified person in Christ can do for the long haul. You can't do it. See, if God in Christ has come to deal with sin, then we need to remember, we need to remember who it is we're dealing with. We're dealing with the creator and the sustainer. We're not dealing with some backroom, backhanded, backdoor Ponzi scheme here. If God is going to deal with sin, he's going to deal with sin all the way down. He doesn't half it. And since he's going to deal with it all the way down, we should be dealing with it all the way down as well. Don't offer yourself to unrighteousness. Don't prostitute your mind or your heart or your body to sin. It doesn't own you anymore. You're dead to it. This is why Paul says what he says in verse 14, which I mentioned earlier. Sin shall not have dominion over you. And why is it not possible for sin to reign over you as an overlord and a despot? Why is it not possible? Because you're not under the power of condemnation. Romans 8.1, if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. It's the same theme he's running through these chapters 6, 7, and 8. The law of God which does condemn you is no longer over you as such. So you're now under the dominion of grace. You're in Christ, then you're in grace. That's it. So why would you ever go back? See, Paul is not condemning the law. This is what antinomian pietists love to say. And clearly that he's condemning the law. You're no longer under law, but under grace. Man, if we could... That's, that, that, that gets under my skin when I hear that. <laughs> Paul's not condemning the law as though its only function is to condemn someone. Oh, the law is just there to condemn you. So why would you want anything to do with it? No. It does condemn us because it shows us what the holiness of God looks like. And like a mirror, it shows us how ugly we are. And yet it also shows us what God is like by revealing the ethical standard of the universe and the Godhead. You don't just look at the law as a mirror to yourself. It reflects, it reflects you in light of who it reflects, which is God. It also shows us our need for Christ. It shows us what justice looks like in a society and so on. So the issue here is the condemnation of the sinner, not the entire purpose of the law for the believer. That's the difference. So the law can't save you, but it sure can guide the saved person. It can't save you, but for the saved person, it can be a guide. We are under grace and law. That's why I said that. And that's because Christ has come to destroy the works of the devil. He has come to abolish death. 1 Timothy 2.10. Or 1.10, I think. I got it backwards. Christ has come for you, dear Christian. He has come to dethrone death, to dethrone sin, and now you must live like this is a new reality, because it is. 
But you might say, well, how do I, how do, I do this exactly? Here's one thing. Don't just resist sin in your life. Taunt sin. Don't just resist it. Taunt it. Taunt death by asking where its sting is. Precious in the sight is the death of his saints, the psalmist writes. That's why you can go to a funeral of a Christian and have both crying and celebration. Where's death's sting? And you might think, well, we're staring at death. You're not, that's not all you're looking at. You're not only looking at that. You're looking at someone who has broken the power of death. Because that person who has died, like a seed, is being buried for a harvest of resurrection. So ask sin and death where its boast is. Don't just navel gaze and try to manage your respectable sins. Taunt them, mock them, ridicule them, make fun of them, laugh at them, jeer at them. But never, never, never entertain them. They want you to be alive, but you're dead to them. So you may mock those sins in holy laughter, but you are not permitted to offer yourself to them. Why would you? You're in Christ. See, the wise man lives like death has died and the power of the old man has been, old man has been shattered. The law's power drove us mad as it shoved our faces in the dung of unrighteousness. That's what it did. That's what the law does to the sinner. But in Christ, this is broken. Since Christ has dethroned Satan and death and sin, you must not treat sin as though it has authority over you. It does not. You don't have to listen to it. The new man does not go to the gravesite of the old man and wish him to be back with us. You don't go to the grave to get marching orders for the new man. Don't put the shackles back on. Be free. Don't try to finagle your way back under sin's dominion. Laugh at its impotency. Be a free man and a free woman because you are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us uh, such a wonderful, remarkable truth here in Romans 6. We thank you that you have crucified um, not just the Lord Jesus who was crucified for us, but that we were crucified with him. And now we confess the truth of Galatians 2 that we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. So Father, I pray as we go about our, our sanctification each and every day that we would not treat the old man as though he has any authority. We are dead to the sin. We are dead to unrighteousness. Father, would you help us by your grace, by your spirit, to be alive in Christ and not only believe it to be true, but act like it's true. Father, we give you this time and we give you the glory and the praise. We thank you for, for your word. We thank you for what you're doing in our community and we exalt you in it. In Christ's name, amen.